The following is a production of the people of Mars Hill. For more information, visit pomh.org. Well, good morning. Great to see everybody here. If you're still coming in and looking for a seat, uh, we have set out some more seats on this side over here. Correct, Mark Rudd? That's it. So there are more seats over here if you're looking. And if you could, if people continue to come in and you have um, empty spots at your table, maybe consolidate and then wave at folks that you know they're doing this number right here looking around. You see that? Wave them over. It's a big party. Huge family. Come on down. Dine with us on God's word. Before we begin, we were talking this Thursday in our, or our Tuesday in our pastor's meeting about how God has been using this series, our time in the book of Romans. We talked a little bit over the holiday season for three weeks about how God had used the book of Romans, the life of giants in the faith, Augustine, Martin Luther, and John Wesley. And yet we haven't really talked about what he's been doing here in the life of Mars Hill. And we told each other stories, things that we've heard, but three in particular stood out to me that I wanted to share with you just as an encouragement to show you that God is still willing and working through his words, even through the foolishness that is us and our ways and our minds. He is redeeming it and using it for his glory. There's a guy who was recently released from prison, and he was randomly invited to Mars Hill. And he's been faithfully coming for the past few weeks learning about Jesus after spending a decade in prison. There's an elderly guy who grew up in a different denomination of Christianity all of his life. And he was, came to Marcel on a recommendation that a friend made him uh, on the Sunday that we started Romans. So the first verse he heard was Romans 1.1. 1, 1. And he has made every single uh, Sunday that he could possibly make between now and then. And he confided in a friend that simply just learning and, and hearing God's word, just reading it and hearing it preached, he's learned more about who Jesus is in his work and in his person than he ever has in the entirety of his entire life. And so the Holy Spirit is willing and working through him. And then there was a young guy who grew up in the church, professed faith recently. We talked about how Wesley had just kind of grown up in the church did the church thing, but it wasn't until after he started a preaching ministry, having gone on a mission trip, that he professed faith in Christ. And that happened to somebody here at Mars Hill. These are beautiful stories because what it means is God is still alive, his word is still active, and he is still transforming hearts and minds. So I just wanted to share that with you guys. Well, today we are in Romans chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. As you're turning your Bibles there, just to recap real quick and remind us, chapters 9 through 11, Paul is basically going to make the argument that God's word has not failed. This is an objection that the Jews reading this for the first time would have had against Paul. God's word has not failed. Paul says, I'm going to prove it because I'm going to quote and use the Old Testament more in these next three chapters than I will in the entire book. And the point I want to make is this. You guys have misunderstood what God's promise was from the beginning. And we need to re-explain it to you. God is not being unfaithful. How? Well, we saw last week, first, not all Israel is actually Israel. Salvation is not based on race. 
It's based on grace. And so within the ethnicity of Israel, there is a spiritual Israel to whom the blessings come. Without faith, you are outside of those blessings. That would have been shocking to them, but it's something they need to hear nonetheless, as is truth in a fallen, sinful world. And the application for us, I believe, is that God is not unfaithful in fulfilling desires that he has for us. If he makes us a promise, we jump to these conclusions about what that promise will be. And when God does not come through with what we think he has promised us, we question God. I thought you said you were going to bless me with X, and it has not come through. God's ways are higher than ours. His definition doesn't always fit our definition. It's the importance of prayer because it aligns our wills with God's will, and the renewing of mind or the renewing of our mind comes during those sweet moments. And secondly, he made the argument last week that God's sovereign election is at play here. This is not the only doctrine that the text presented us last week, but it is perhaps the most important to draw out from here. So this objection comes up, if God chooses one and not chooses the other, does that mean he is unjust? And Paul basically says no. So when you're thinking about who is real Israel and God's sovereign election in balance with human responsibility, last week you could say was a controversial sermon, right? And I said that you could email me if you had questions. So of course, with these two topics, I did get some emails and I just wanted to clarify some things. The first email, dear pastor, why do you hate cats? I don't know. I just do. Pastor Kyle, I know that was a controversial topic. I agree. Cats are evil. Thanks for speaking the truth. Thank you, wherever you are. You're with me. Pastor Kyle, just so you know, I couldn't make it, but I watched the simulcast and my cat hissed at the computer the entire time. Just kidding. Only one of those is true. I made it the other two. This week's message is going to continue on in the thought that Paul had from last week. If you were totally lost about the cat comments, that's okay. Uh, it was like an illustration, a really poor one from last week, I should say. This week, Paul's going to continue on with this, and he's going to ask the obvious question, is God unjust? How is he able to choose one and not choose the other? Paul's going to say, no, obviously he's not unjust, which is going to get us to a second point, that we can't get God on our agenda. This is a work that God is doing in us. It's not something that we pull him by his coattails to be done in our lives. And finally, the way that God is showing us mercy is through his son, a reminder of the importance of the cross. So this is what we're going to talk about today. Is God unjust? Can we get God on our agenda? And how does God show us mercy? First, is God unjust? If God covenants with some and not with others, is God being unjust when he does that? If it's true, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated, is God fair? Is he unjust? Paul says, what shall we say then? Verse 14, is there injustice on God's part? By no means. The short answer for Paul to that question is no. And this is a really strong no in the Greek. It means, may it never be. It carries this idea, it's impossible. Let us pray that it never become possible. Well, how can God say, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, but that's not 
unjust. He can say that because God does not change and God is just. In the letter of James, we are told that there is no variation or shadow due to change in God. He is static. He is constant. He is consistent. He is perpetual in his nature and in his attributes. These things do not change in him. Carrying that on to the Son, the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And a God who never changes cannot violate his nature and cannot violate his attributes. If he is fair, he is never unfair. If he is good, he is always good. If he is just, there is never, ever a break in his justice. And you can actually take this one step further. Because the argument could be made, well, if God is just, then that means he's uh, holding to some kind of outside standard of justice and he's just following it perfectly well. No, no, no. Let's take it one step further. God is not only just, he is the source from which justice comes. Our understanding of what justice is, is caught up in the person, so to speak, of God, in who he is. It's not enough to say that God practices justice. He is himself justice. So, if this is true, then the tables will now turn on us. Are we asking if God is unjust? Think about what that question is. You, an unjust, finite being, have just asked justice himself whether or not he is being unjust. That's the weight that Paul is bringing to this text. And this is not the first time we've seen this kind of conversation before, is it? When we come to this kind of question, I would recommend that we do so humbly. God is never unjust, but in the moments that we seem to think he is, because we're limited in time, we're limited in our understanding, we don't quite see what he's doing right now, we want to accuse God of being unjust. But we cannot, and we have a great story of what happens if we even tiptoe around that topic. Do you remember Job? That's a great story about God's justice. Job was described as a man who was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. And he became the center of this cosmic duel between good and evil, in which basically good defeated evil very handily. God was proving to the enemy that those who are mine, who love me, are in my covenant will not be lost from your devices and your scheming and your planning. It's not going to happen. So God allowed catastrophe to strike Job. All of his employees were murdered. His sheep were, they, they were killed. It doesn't sound like a big deal. Like who cares if you lose some sheep back then? That's your bank account. So just think your bank account's drained. Your camels are gone. That would be a big deal because I love my camel. I know you guys love your camel too. Imagine one day you go to the garage and your camel's gone. All of his children were killed in a natural disaster. What happened next? What would I do? I would wake up in the morning and be like, God, what in the world? Why did you do this? That's unfair. What did I do to deserve that? No, Job's a better man than I. He said, in all this, Job did not sin and he did not charge God with wrong. But you know what it doesn't mean? It doesn't mean Job didn't question. And it doesn't mean that Job didn't complain. In fact, with the help of some bad friends, he complained in question for the next 37 chapters. He complained in question about God's justice. And after God patiently allowed him to do so, this is what God did. 
He put Job in his place. He said, gird your loins. You know, that phrase comes from the Old Testament. Men used to wear tunics. And if you're running into battle, how many of you have run in a dress? All the ladies should be saying yes. Any men, I don't know about that one. If you run in a dress, what happens? You're going to get tripped up. So what you do is you pull your tunic from the back up front and you strap a belt around it so that your legs are now exposed and you can run. That's what gird up your loins means. He says in the ESV, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known for me. Where were you when the universe was created? All right, you weren't. Who laid out the measurement of earth? You can't do that and then created it. Probably can't do that either. Who created the oceans that you swim in? Job, do this. Who created the air and the atmosphere that you breathe and need to survive? Who set the planets into orbit around the sun? Who makes the seasons come and go? Who is the master and designer between the laws of physics and sustains them? Who put each star in their place? Who keeps the food chain in the biological system on earth going so that you can survive? That's me. Bottom line, Job, I am creator. You are created. So what is his response? I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes." the correct answer. You're right. I am created. You are creator. Frankly, that's all we need. That's it. If that's all God gave us, that would be more than enough. That is all we need not to question God almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. If the accusation on our tongue exists to say God's not just, God may rightly reply, you have no authority. And you are in no place to question what I can and cannot do. But it gets worse. Because what God could say is, I'm not being just. Would you like me to give you justice? That's the thing we forget, isn't it? God, you're not being fair. You're not being just. God's like, you're right. (laughs) I'm not giving you justice. Would you like it? Here's where we forget something that I think is really, really crucial. When we question God's justice, we're inviting his justice on ourselves. And by inviting justice on ourselves, we are asking God not to give us mercy and grace. Because justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is receiving what you don't deserve. These are three different things. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. God, I want justice. God's like, no, you don't. Let me walk this through. Sin is a cosmic violation against my law. All have sinned and fallen short to the glory of God, which includes you. Romans 6, if you work for the enemy and you work for sin, and you've done a day's work of sin, what's your paycheck at the end of the day? What is the wages for sin? Death. If you are questioning God's justice and you're asking God to have justice, what you're asking for, don't you see, absent Christ is death? This is why God's patience is so incredible, because he's saying what you want actually is mercy. You don't want what you deserve. You want my hand of 
judgment to stay itself before it comes to you. But not only that, God takes it a step further. And in his infinite love, he doesn't just merely stay his hand of judgment, but he moves his hand of mercy and he moves his hand of blessing and he gives us mercy upon mercy, which becomes grace, things that we don't even deserve. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this a wonderful picture of how patient God is with us. You see, Paul is essentially saying, do you want God to be just? Do you even know what you're asking for? Let it never be. You don't want God's justice. You want his mercy. Is God unjust? By no means. He continues, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Again, it's not about what you want, human will. Because what you want has been so bent by sin as to never want good. And it's not about what you do, human exertion because we cannot measure up to the glory of God, we've fallen short. Instead, it's all about what God wants. And through his love, he wants you. And he wants you to come to him. And he knows that you will not, nor cannot come to him. So he makes a way. This is why it's all about what God does. He loves, he shows mercy, he predestined, he covenants, he adopts, he transforms, he saves. This is Paul's big point. It's not about you. It's all about God. So that God will receive all of the glory, not us. You cannot get God on your side. By God's grace alone, he gets you on his side. That brings us to our second point, getting God on our agenda. I think that's the reason why Paul quotes Moses rather than just merely saying, look, God has mercy and compassion on who he wills. Paul could have just as easily have said that. Look, God's not fair or God's not unfair because he has mercy and, and, and compassion on whom he wants to. But he doesn't. He takes a little step further. And again, because he's trying to prove the point that this has been the way it's always been, he actually quotes Moses. And if there's a quote from Moses, I think it would be who of us to go back to the Old Testament and see the context around this quote. Because what it will do is it will paint this in a light that is helpful for us to understand. You can't get God on your agenda. So where does this quote come from? It comes from Exodus 33. And the story starts with a golden calf. God miraculously rescued Israel from Egypt. He sends Moses into Egypt, and through a series of events, he pries Israel from the evil grip of Pharaoh, and she's free. Then, through Moses, she redeems and rescues Israel by parting the Red Sea and destroying those who would pursue and destroy God's plan after her. Then, after these miracles, after being emancipated from slavery, after having provision after provision after miraculous provision given to her, Israel thanks God by doing what? Building an idol and giving thanks to the idol as opposed to God. God happy with this? No. In angered disappointment, God's heart breaks and grieves to see the idolatry that Israel had come into. And in his fury, we're told, Israel makes plans to blot her out. That's not good, right? And Moses is here. 
as the arbiter between the people and God, a foreshadowing, a type of Jesus between his people and God. So Moses comes and he pleads with God, take me, not them. Exodus 33, or 32, 31 through 33. Alas, this people has sinned great. I get it. The, the golden idol thing, that's kind of obvious, right? They have sinned greatly. They have made for themselves gods of gold. Here's the important part. But now, if you will, God, if you want to forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Does that sound familiar? I wish that my kinsmen according to the flesh, would know God so that I would be cut off from Christ so that they would know Christ. This is a foreshadowing almost of Paul's emotions that he had at the beginning of the chapter. So God hears Moses out. He decides, I'm not going to blot out Israel. Instead, he mercifully carries on the plan that he had for them. This is a plan that centuries later, when they're back in captivity in Babylon, he would remind them through Jeremiah, these are plans for welfare, not evil. These are plans for a hope and a future. God has these for his people. He wants to give them. And so he relents and he says, yes, I will continue on with that plan. And he instructs Moses, take the people to Canaan. Take the people to the promised land. But the instructions come with a caveat. There's an asterisk next to that. Israel will go into the promised land, but God cannot go with them. 33, verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, God says, but I will not go up among you. Why? Lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. <laughs> You're going to sin on the way to Canaan, and we're going to be right back where we started here today. That way, if I'm away from you, this won't happen. Israel's sin will move God to destroy them, and Moses knows exactly what that means. He's thinking to himself, uh-oh, I have just seen and witnessed the greatest destructive power in the universe. I've seen plagues. I've seen death of firstborns. I've seen crashing waves of the ocean. And now God is saying, if we sin, these things will come to us. We will be blotted out as well. And Moses is thinking to himself, if I'm a betting man... Israel's probably going to sin on our way to Canaan. Case in point, the giant golden calf. He knows the predicament that they are in. So here's the conundrum with Moses. If Israel sins, she'll be destroyed. But if God is not with Israel, will Israel not be destroyed by the Canaanites anyway? Will she not be destroyed in the wilderness through exposure? If God's provision is not there, aren't they doomed anyway? That's a tough thing for Moses to get around. What's the solution? To convince Israel to come with them and not destroy them. That's the plan that Moses concocts. Moses says, wait, Lord, just a second. I thought we were a distinct people. Remember? We're the, we're the seed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if I'm not mistaken, you promised through Abraham that the blessing would come to your descendants. Are we not those descendants? Are we not distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth, he says in verse 16? Aren't we different from the people we came from, Egypt, and from the people that we're going to in Canaan? And doesn't it make sense that you be with us in Canaan so that everybody would know that we are distinct? But in the back of his mind, he has an ulterior motive almost. You can see it. If it is known that God's people are distinct, then you're not going to destroy us. 
because that would mean that your mission failed. And if you're with us in Canaan, we can't be destroyed by the Canaanites for the same reason as the first one. This is the solution to Moses's problem. Let's get God on our side. Let's hogtie him, grab him by the, by, the, by the tail and force him to be with us. And here's how he does it, through two requests. The first, God would show his ways so that way Israel would know what to do to please God and that God would show his glory so that way there would be a special relationship that Israel had with God that no other nation on the earth would have. How could God destroy a nation to whom he has shown his ways and he has shown his glory. You see, Moses is trying to do a work that would bind God to Israel. He's attempting to secure God's allegiance to Israel through works, even though he already promised it through his grace and through faith. He's treating God, I think this is worse yet, he's treating God like a pagan Egyptian deity that had this system of back-scratching. You do something for me, the God says, and I'll do something for you. How arrogant and naive, isn't it? And couldn't God, in his anger, have burned against Moses right then and there? How dare you treat me like some kind of pagan Egyptian deity? How dare you try to attempt to manipulate me? But that's not what we see in the text. What we see is that God is patient and he's kind, and he willingly chose to show Moses where his glory had been. We know the rest of the story. God hides Moses in a rock. He puts his hand in front of the rock as he passes. And a lot of translations say Moses saw God's back. It's not quite clear. It's perhaps better to see that God passed by left and Moses had saw where God had been. Not even his back, but where he had been. He willingly chose to do that because he's patient and he loves Moses and he has a plan for the people that Moses was leading. This is the story set around Paul's quote. This is why Paul intentionally quotes Moses rather than just reproducing his words, even though he could have. He wants this background brought up front for us to see. So when we hear these words, we will remember the story. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. That is the question for, is God unjust? Well, what does this all mean? Where are we going with this? Moses was asking a bad question. And it's a question that secretly in the back of our minds and in the bottom of our hearts, I think we ask. How can I get God on my side? How can I manipulate God into serving me? The answer is, you can't. You cannot. You see, God's choice to forgive Israel, his choice to reveal his glory to Moses, was an expression of God's freedom to choose. None of these represent God or Israel's freedom. None of them represent Israel's freedom. Israel was in bondage and she was powerless. If you believe you are powerful to get God on your side, then you underestimate God's sovereign freedom and you overestimate your own power. God gives mercy to whom he wants. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, Paul continues, but on God who has mercy. This brings us to our last point. God is mercying through Jesus. 
if it doesn't depend on human will, and it doesn't depend on exertion, and God is just, even though we've broken the law and we rightfully deserve his justice, how does he get around that? Well, the answer is he doesn't. His mercy is in keeping in perfect line with his own law. And it is through the fact that God is mercying through Jesus. Let me read that passage again, or that verse again. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. There's a nuance here in the sentence in Greek that's very powerful. This is kind of tricky to translate from Greek into English because of the way that the, sent, or the, the, the words that the sentence use exactly. So there's two words I want to talk about, and then um, the, the term mercy I think is very important. The word for human will is thelo, which means to will or desire. That's easy. But it means more than that. It's our wants. It's our opinions. It's what we want from the inside. It's our wishes. And the word exertion is treko, which means to run. Not just run, but to run to the point of exhaustion. To run a marathon, and then run another marathon, and then right before you go to bed, run an Ironman. Like, that's the, the term, the, the meaning that the term carries with it. So what Paul is saying is it depends not on your wanting, your desire. It depends not on your working to exhaustion, your fingers down to the bone. You're missing the point. That's not what it's about. Those things, receiving God's mercy through those means, that's impossible. You can't do it. Why? Because it's God who has mercy. Now, when we hear that part of the sentence, it's God who has mercy, what do we think about mercy? We think about it as a noun. God has a storehouse of blessing, and one of the things he can go and pull off the shelf is mercy and then distribute it to us. That's true, but that's not quite what's going on in the Greek. You see, the word for mercy is not a noun. It's an active verb. It's better translated mercy-ing. God is mercying. But the problem is, there is no word mercying in English, and so translators are left with has mercy. So what Paul is saying here is that it depends not on your willing or your working to exhaustion, but God who is constantly mercying over us. He's continually pouring out his mercy to us. He is actively withholding what we deserve, which is our justice. But how? How can God be just and give us mercy and withhold his judgment if the law demands it? The Sunday school answer, Jesus. He's already told us the answer back in chapter 3, right? Romans 3, 24 through 25. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as, here's the key word, a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. All this is tying together little by little. God is mercying through propitiation. Those two words are linked together. You can't have one without the other because to propitiate means to mercy. And for God to mercy means to make a propitiation. You see, after Moses 
had that discussion with God and Moses failed to get God on his side, he would later receive instructions on how to propitiate, how to allow God to mercy for sin. So here's the deal. God is going to go with them through the wilderness. He is going to go in through Canaan. He's going to make that promise. But so God's anger would not blot the people out. He sets up a system of sacrifice so that their sins could be propitiated for. Moses is given descriptions by God of what this would look like. It is a portable tabernacle, a place that is holy with three sections. In the center section, in the closest, most private section, the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was something called the mercy seat. Not literally something that you sat on, but where God the judge sat on in his presence. And year after year on Yom Kippur, one of the most holy days in the biblical uh, festival calendar, the high priest, having made a perfect sacrifice on behalf of the people, would take the blood from the sacrifice, enter the Holy of Holies, utter God's personal name, sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and for another year, Israel's sins would be forgiven and God would not blot her out. But that's not where the story ends because that's a foreshadow of something greater to come. Fast forward to the early 30s AD in Rome, in Israel. There is the celebration of Passover, the story of how God's wrath passed over the Jews in Egypt because of the blood of a perfect spotless lamb so that the firstborn would not die. This celebration is, being, uh, is coming to fruition and enter Christ, who is God's only son. He is the one who is the perfect sacrifice. He is the one who is not saved, but put forward, as Paul says, as a sacrifice for sin, not in private, in the Holy of Holies, but in public, naked on a cross by his blood, that propitiation then is made. God mercy seated us in public on the cross before the world, both Jew and Gentile to see. Christ, God's only son, is not only our great mercy seat, but he is also our sacrifice and he is the reason that God's wrath will pass over us. But does that stop there? No. Today, God continues to mercy us through that event. What the Holy of Holies and mercy seat foreshadowed, Christ came to fulfill, and still to this day, 2,000 years later, that is how our relationship is made right with God. This is how he propitiates for us. This is how God is actively mercying. So when Paul says it depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy, what he means is that God is continually mercying. He's continually propitiating. He's continually mercy seating. He's continually atoning his beloved because he wants to show you that mercy. He wants it to be yours. In fact, God wants to show you that mercy so badly that he held back his mercy from his son on the cross. That is how much he wants to show you that mercy. You are not the reason that God gives you that mercy. He is the reason. Paul elsewhere said, this is not of your own doing. Faith and salvation. It is the gift of God not as a result of work so that no one can boast. We do not contribute to the mercy God shows us. In fact, the only thing that we contribute to justification is the sin that required God's mercy in the first place. 
think about that. The only thing we contribute to our justification is the sin that required our justification in the first place. It's all about God. It's all about Jesus. And I'm so glad it is because we fall so short. And if it was up to us, there wouldn't be a single person that could stand before him. That's how much he loves us. As the band comes up, we want to do something a little bit different today. We want to spend time in reflection on this point because it's so important, it's so crucial for us to allow to saturate our soul. No one can say, God, you need to save me. We have to shake this from our hearts. We cannot say, God, you owe me salvation, you owe me justification, you owe me mercy and grace because an owed mercy and an owed grace is by definition no longer mercy or grace. It's something we get that we do not deserve. So the question we must ask is not, to whom does God show mercy? And if he doesn't show mercy to somebody, is he unjust? The better question that we should be asking ourselves is, to whom did God not show mercy? The answer, his only begotten son, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We should get what we deserve. We do not get what we deserve in Christ. That's God's mercy. Instead, Christ got what we deserve so that God may shower us with what we do not deserve. That is his grace. God showed Christ no mercy when he poured out his full cup of wrath on him so that he could be merciful to us through Christ. For as Daniel said, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. So to whom did God choose to show mercy? It's God's choice to whom he will show mercy. And he has chosen to show mercy to any whom would repent and believe in his son. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Church, I would love for us at this moment to spend time in serious contemplation and reflection on these points, in adoration and thanksgiving for the fact that what we deserve, we do not get, and what we do not get, he, or what we do not deserve, he gives us. And if this is a message you've never heard before, or this is something that the Holy Spirit has used to pierce your heart, Find someone around you who is a child of God, a believer in this gospel, and ask them in this moment to pray for you, that you would be able to be called a son or daughter of Christ through the propitiation and continually mercy of God.